This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Siemens. Ingenuity for life. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Thursday, December 13th, the Washington Post gathered local elected officials, industry leaders, and experts for a discussion about the intersection of technology, mobility, and the future of cities. In this segment, we will hear from trailblazing new mayors and other local officials about how they are approaching safety concerns and other variables presented by new technology. We'll also hear about how they're working to make their cities and communities attractive to job-producing, urban development projects and businesses. Let's listen. Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you for being here with us today. My name's Kat Sakreski, and I'm the anchor of the Technology 202 newsletter here at The Post. And we've got a great group of local community leaders with us here today in Washington to talk a little bit about how technologies are changing their communities. And so I'll just kick things off right now. Um, We've got Mayor Andy Burke joining us from Chattanooga. We have John Lewis joining us from Charlotte. And we have Mayor Pete Buttigieg. (laughs) Sorry. Just call me Mayor Pete. (laughs) That's that's, that's how he's known. And and he's joining us here today from South Bend. So um, I'm really excited to kick things off and hear a little bit about, you know, what you're seeing um, from different technologies and how they're influencing the lives of your citizens every day. And, And so Mayor Pete, maybe to just kick things off, I'd love to hear a little bit about how technology has changed South Bend during your time as mayor, because when you first took office in 2011, when you were elected in 2011, the city was on a list of you know, America's top 10 dying cities. You had very low population of people under the age of 18. And, and so can you talk to me a little bit about how the city has changed during your tenure? Yeah, I mean, one thing that, that uh, really defined South Bend was, was that uh, we had been an industry town. We were, we were an auto company town, and I think uh, uh, when that collapsed in the 60s, it it felt for a while that the city might never recover. Um, But by the time uh, uh, those of us who believed in the city came together and uh, organized this campaign for mayor in 2011, we knew that uh, the only way we could recapture the kind of energy that our predecessors had was not to try to collapse into nostalgia and go back to their world, but to emulate their focus on the future. And so we tried to do that in the administration by establishing a very uh, data-driven and and, uh, tech-capable administration internally. Uh, and as a community writ large. What we realized very quickly was our scale was actually a huge advantage. So we're a city of roughly 100,000. We're kind of prototypical in a lot of ways, relatively low income, but diverse uh, and middle density. And that means we're just big enough that we taste every big city issue from gun violence to public transportation, but small enough that we can be a test bed for new ideas on how to deal with it. And so we began to really position ourselves as a beta city. Um, This had begun, even under my predecessor, with an initiative that that brought us the smartest wastewater system in the world, which is the kind of thing only a mayor can love, but um, uh, I think it's extremely exciting. Um, We were also uh, the first city, uh, I think, or or certainly at scale, uh, we had the largest deployment of 
dockless bike share. Um, and that was only a year and a half ago. Um, it's hard to believe that was city, only a year and yeah. a half ago when you see how many are around cities Yeah, then now. cities, Seattle next, and then Washington and all the others kind of uh, uh, overtook us for how many bikes were in the city. But we were the first uh, to really uh, embrace that. Uh, and so not every one of these implementations works. Uh, mm -hmm. But what we've learned is if you have the right appetite for risk uh, and you partner with the academic sector and the private sector in the right way, these applications really can make a big difference in the lives of especially vulnerable residents. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about that issue of partnering with companies because, you know, you talk a little bit about how this was a successful partnership with the, the bike company, but we've heard a lot of criticism from other city officials about the way that some of these dockless scooters and bikes have broken into their city. So can you talk to me a little bit about how you kind of manage that relationship? Yeah, it's, it's a, a new kind of relationship. So I think, I think mayors are used to private entities coming to us and, ask, us and asking for money. Uh, it's usually in the form of tax abatement or sometimes outright cash. Mayors come under pressure to buy jobs, and uh, we kind of negotiate how much we're actually going to play that game. What was new, at least to me, when, uh, in our case, Lime came, is that uh, they weren't asking for anything, but like, or at least in terms of money. But like any free lunch, there's something going on, right? Mm -hmm. And really what's being negotiated is value. So for example, if a company would like to store its inventory on your sidewalks, uh, that is a, a request for value from a public asset that needs to be negotiated. And it's not always obvious what to ask for when you have a completely new technology. The big things we asked for were, uh, first of all, data, I want to know where these bikes were being used. And, and, of course, they were capturing data that really would be the envy of any uh, planner to figure out uh, future decisions about how our, our land use and, and bike lanes and, and streets ought to work. Uh, and secondly, ways to make sure it was accessible from an equity perspective for low-income people. Um, and uh, and bank, uh, unbanked people, which is a real issue for any kind of uh, shared mobility application. Um, other communities have focused on things like background checks, and there have been uh, fierce battles over this. It's still being hashed out and negotiated, but I actually think it's a healthy thing for this to be hashed out at the city level. You know, as much is made of, of states in federalism as the laboratories of, of good ideas and democracy, um, you have uh, thousands instead of 50 uh, municipalities that can take the first steps toward regulating these things, and then we can harmonize. It. And I hope uh, before the states preempt us, as they tend to do, uh, that we're given some room to hash these things out locally and figure out what really matters. And so, Mr. Lewis, I want to ask you, too, a little bit about how um, your city has dealt with these types of new micromobility, like, like scooters and bikes. Um, was the entrance of scooters similar in Charlotte? Sure. I, I think this is really an exciting time from a mobility standpoint. I mean, think about the last five years of these, you know, disruptive and new technologies that have come in and really changed the absolute landscape of how we move, um, not just commuting, but how do we move in our daily lives. Um, we thought in Charlotte, uh, we were a little bit ahead of the game, just as the mayor was saying, we had just gotten our hands around dockless bikes. I mean, we thought we were doing something when we had docked bicycles. And then the dockless bicycles came around, and we were just getting that. And then literally, we wake up one morning, and scooters are everywhere. And so it was, it was a shock. 
Um, but we started having similar conversations um, with both Lyme and Bird and the, and the others. Um, what has happened in, in Charlotte is as the proliferation of scooters continues, the bikes have dropped off, so it uh, seems like. So we're not dealing with that overabundance of, of options. It looks like the market is making, is driving um, the choice of how these companies deploy. But we uh, entered into a pilot with this. And, and like um, what Mayor's doing in South Bend, we wanted data. We wanted to know how the, um, the people are using it, um, where they're using it, and then try and develop some kind of rules um, in the short term for how they utilize our right-of-way, because it really is a public investment um, that they're utilizing in order to do this. But the fascinating thing is, in that first month, we had well over 100,000 rides um, on that in Charlotte. So the, the citizens, and the market is absolutely there. Uh, I think what we want to do, and we, uh, in Charlotte, we uh, want to cast ourselves as an innovative city, a city um, that is willing to take a little bit of risk uh, in order to create that environment where talent wants to locate. Um, and so we've got to balance that. The, the um, need of the uh, interest of the business owner and the homeowner who uh, is concerned about uh, uh, these uh, objects in the right-of-way with the legitimate mobility options uh, that people are utilizing. And as a transit uh, uh, executive, these are very critical to the first and last mile connections. And so it is actually expanding the utilization of public transit because when you get off that train at the last, at your station, and you're wondering how do I get from the mobility option, the train, to home or to the office or to the doctor's office, you have another option there, uh, and people are clearly utilizing it. And so I have to personally admit, I'm a little scared when I'm on these scooters. They go pretty fast. My friends make fun of me because I go like five miles per hour when I'm on one. I mean, how are you dealing with the very obvious safety issues um, that come with these scooters and um, just the issue of whether or not people have helmets with them when they're hopping well, on? I, and, and that's as um, was stated earlier, we're trying to figure all of these out uh, within the laboratory of, of the pilot that we're working with them on. And so we hope that, that people will be smart, um, that they will follow the rules of the road. Um, we're still trying to figure out where uh, they can be utilized, um, hopefully not on sidewalks, within the uh, traveling right-of-way, um, not on highways, etc. cetera. Uh, a lot of that, though, is common sense. Mm -hmm. um, and so we ask people to utilize these with a bit of uh, common sense. Uh, as we finish our pilot, we'll have to get into there. Uh, do we require um, other safety amenities, helmets, reflective vests, or uh, other uh, safety items? Um, thank goodness I'll leave that up to the elected officials in, in Charlotte. Um, but we are excited about the options, uh, the extension of mobility options that they provide. And Mayor Burke, I mean, that story about scooters, it seems like a reminder of sometimes technology companies have a strategy of, um, you know, asking for forgiveness later rather than permission. It's certainly the playbook we've seen with some of these ride sharing companies. How as a city official do you deal with that strategy? Well, it's difficult. I think that um, in 2018, trust is is a problem for every institution. It's definitely a problem for technology institutions. It's a problem for government. Uh, I think the one good thing about being a local municipal official is we actually have about as much trust as any uh, public official you're going to have. Um, but 
just like uh, just like everybody else, when a technology company comes to you, as as Pete was saying, and says, "Here's what we bring to the table," um, I guess the the 1980 version of this is trust but verify. Uh, you know, you want to make sure that you talk to them, you understand uh, what they bring to the table. But um, for us, the most important thing that we have is the public realm. Like our beautiful streets, Chattanooga is known as best town ever. Outside Magazine called us that because of our physical beauty. If we don't take care of those things, then uh, we can lose that easily. And on top of that, we have this Oh, this amazing time that we're in that I, I think is the biggest revolution that I'll see in my lifetime is the invention of the web. The second biggest is the mobility revolution. But now we're faced with these questions like, okay, wh where do bikes go? Is it different for motorized bikes? Is that different for scooters? We have these little things that I don't even know what they're called where people have one wheel unicycle deals <laughs> right. and they run and people are... It, do those go in different places than the other uh, mobility options? And so this is an increasingly complex regulatory environment, but on top of the regulations and the safety, what, what do we want our streets to feel like? What do we want our downtowns to, to be? And I think that those are actually real questions that have to be answered. And so, Mayor Burke, I mean, you mentioned the invention of the web, and a lot of people here in Washington might not know too much about the very high-speed internet that you've brought to Chattanooga. So could you tell us a little bit about that and the influence that's had on the tech sector in your city? Yeah, so Chattanooga has the, the fastest, cheapest, most pervasive internet in the world. We have a fiber optic network that goes to every single home and every single business in a 600-square-mile area, and that piece is really important. So it doesn't matter where you live, what you do, um, what your interests are, you have an access to a 10 gig connection at your home. And so the, what this means, importantly, is that Netflix is really fast uh, in Chattanooga. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I was recently someplace else and there was a wheel. I was like, what, what is this wheel thing that y'all are uh, looking at? So, um, so this has been a huge advantage for us. Um, I think it's all about how do we take that and not just use it as, okay, we have this thing and, and it's fixed, but how do we exploit this ultra high-speed broadband? And so we've built a burgeoning innovation district with a big tech sector that's growing every day. In places like Chattanooga and South Bend, it doesn't take Facebook to change a city. It doesn't take these monstrous investments. When two and three person firms become 100 and 200 person businesses, that is huge economic development for us. And that's really what we're seeing right now. And so I wanted to ask you too, I mean, there's been a big focus right now as scrutiny of the tech giants has increased on moving tech business outside of the Bay Area. It really struck me during Sundar Pichai's opening testimony this week, he talked about how jobs at Google are growing faster outside of the Bay Area than within it. And so I just want to ask you, um, you know, have you been seeing more interest from Bay, Bay Area tech companies to move their jobs to Chattanooga? Yeah, we're hearing from people now. When we were looking at uh, my economic development team came and asked me about Amazon HQ2 and I said, you can do whatever you want as long as it takes less than an hour. Um, so, you know, I think that we have to be careful. What we've learned is, I think when we turned on our ultra high speed broadband, we thought the big thing that's going to happen is tech companies were going to move to Chattanooga. Turned out that at least for a long period of time, that wasn't the case. What really happened was we started generating our own activity, and that's been the game changer for us. 
now I think that, that others around the country are starting to get interested and we're starting to hear from them, it's definitely changed, changed again and we'll see kind of what these next iterations are. And Mary Pete, some of the cities that did offer, you know, Amazon tax cuts um, in order to draw HQ2 to their cities are getting a lot of blowback right now. What, what do you think about that? I mean, again, I grew up in the shadow of an 800,000 square foot empty factory that, that is kind of a living monument to what happens if you put all of your eggs in one basket. So if we're going to have 20,000 jobs in South Bend, I would frankly rather have them 100 at a time across 200 firms, which is generally what happens. That's how our advanced manufacturing companies work. And, and we do have a, uh, an emerging uh, data sector because we have great fiber connectivity, cheap power, and cold weather, which is great if you're in the data center industry. And then we have some analytics companies attached to that. Um, you know, there's still that old model in the imagination of, I think, many of us in cities about luring the big fish. Because for a while, it's all anybody knew. It used to be factories. We called it smokestack chasing. Uh, now it's, it's the same in, in many ways for these tech headquarters. But, uh, you know, uh, you also ask how some of these uh, big presences can break the city that they're in, which is why they're looking for others in the first place. Companies are made of people. And I think the best thing you can do is establish a quality of place and a quality of life that uh, draws people in a way that's neutral to all of the economic changes that are going to come and go. Because if we try to guess uh, what's next, one industrial shift at a time, we're always fighting the last war. Uh, and I think we're better off just making sure that we're the kind of place where people can thrive, the kind of place people would want to go to. And then when you have an economically unsustainable reality, like the fact that uh, my nice big house on the river in South Bend costs less than a parking place uh, in Palo Alto, uh, some of those other factors will begin to take care of themselves. Interesting. And um, Mr. Lewis, I know in Charlotte, there's already a very vibrant financial services sector, but what kinds of things are you doing to draw tech businesses there? Sure. I think I'll steal a little bit from uh, my boss and, and our mayor, Vi Lyles. Um, she talks a lot about creating a community, as I mentioned earlier, where talent wants to live. Um, and you do that by providing affordable housing and providing um, varied mobility options and good education and uh, safe communities. And when you answer those questions, then talent wants to live in that community. Um, because, in, and once you create that, then the jobs and the companies go where talent resides. And so I think there's, there's that back and forth over, do you chase or do you want to create an, an environment where uh, tech companies and all companies want to reside? And I think that's been the Charlotte model a, l a little bit. Um, and it's worked. Um, it, we have become, uh, I think, the um, second uh, financial uh, hub in, in the country with uh, Wells Fargo and Bank of America. Uh, we're also uh, Duke Energy uh, resides in Charlotte. And we're developing a burgeoning financial tech uh, uh, market where small uh, companies are beginning to pop up to support the larger financial uh, firms that are there. And so we're, our focus really is on creating a community um, that meets everyone's needs, um, but then becomes a place where talent wants to reside. And Mayor Pete, we're on the Washington Post stage in D.C., so just given some of the stories that have been out there in the media this year, I have to ask you, are you planning to run for president in 2020? <laughs> 
I'm getting ready to announce whether I'm running for mayor again, so w one thing at a time. <laughs> what I will say is that I think this is a season for uh, local leaders to have a presence in the national conversation, if only because, uh, as Andy said, it's, it's the one level of government that seems to enjoy the most trust and arguably the one that remains uh, the most democratic. And so I'm curious, um, you know, looking at the state of the party right now, what advice do you have for the national Democrats? Uh, well, uh, I think paying more attention to the industrial Midwest would be a good start. Um, I think there's also a level of generational energy that is tectonic right now. And I don't necessarily mean it's about young candidates for young voters. I do think that there is a premium placed on authenticity and a new level of expectation of originality and boldness, uh, that if the, the ideas that come forward, and this is not necessarily about how being bold by being this far left or, or, or this close to the center, but just being bold in terms of the scope and aspiration at a moment when the, the foundation of our democracy is being tested, at a moment when uh, the, the structures that we live under are being questioned uh, and, and are fraying at the seams. Uh, a prescription or an answer that, that uh, could just as well have been read out in the 90s isn't going to make sense to an, an emerging generation of voters. And if we want to have a message that's going to make sense as this presidency comes and goes, which sooner or later it will, you know, something that will actually make sense in 2040 or 2050, we can't be nibbling around the edges of a system that people clearly weren't happy with. If people voted according to an economic anxiety pattern in 2016 under conditions of full employment. It means the system isn't working in a pretty deep way for people. Uh, and we've got to find a way to offer real solutions that are profound enough to be convincing. And you mentioned that the parties looked over the Midwest and there was a lot of kind of soul searching, I think, after the 2016 election on this issue of being stuck in bubbles. And, and certainly in the tech industry, we saw a lot of people talking about this and it felt like everyone in Silicon Valley was reading Hillbilly Elegy for a couple months there. I mean, uh, how has that translated into any action in the last two years since that election? Well, I think there has been a, a healthy increase in attention to uh, not just the industrial Midwest, but those parts of the country, so-called flyover country, that have felt left behind in some of these conversations. Uh, and uh, I think that needs to continue. Uh, more than anything, we, we need to have a politics that reaches people where they are, because um, I got to tell you, the kinds of things that are being, that are commanding the attention of the Washington press corps uh, are often not even in the top five or top ten of the things that are on the minds of people in, in my neighborhood uh, or in so many communities, uh, whether it's in the Midwest or, or any other part of the heartland. And so on that point, I mean, this week in Washington, as a tech policy reporter, we've been really focused on things like the Google hearing and these issues of the power of big tech. But I'm curious, how much do you think voters will care about those technology issues as they head to the polls in 2020? I think people want to know what affects them personally, right? It's, that's the reason why, of all of the things going on, for example, in mobility, the one that commands the most uh, chatter at the moment is scooters. It's just something people can see and, and, and feel and touch, even though I would argue actually the most compelling conversations uh, around infrastructure today largely have to do with wastewater. Um, I'm sorry I keep coming back to wastewater, but this stuff's really important. Um, so, you know, we need to make sure that these don't sound like abstract conversations. People want, what's going to happen to me? And if, if it does become about what's going to happen to my data, for example, then this will become a very urgent conversation. Um, but we are, frankly, as a country, behind, uh, way behind. You know, in Estonia right now, a, a country of 1.2 million people, 
the only things you can't do online in terms of a government process uh, are get married and a real estate transaction. Other than that, you can vote. Uh, you can pay your taxes in a matter of minutes from your phone. And, and we're still trying to figure out how to outgrow social security numbers as the main way to, to have an identity number for, for citizens. Uh, we are getting lapped right now. Uh, when it comes to technology. And when that starts to hit home in the form of missed economic opportunities or people being taken advantage of, that's when it becomes a salient political issue. And so, Mayor Burke, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that, too. I mean, on this issue of tech policy and how it affects your voters' lives, I mean, do you think that local municipalities should be doing more to legislate on tech issues like privacy? Well, I think that, um, first of all, th this is a huge issue right now. And the, for voters, the issue isn't really, is it important to them? Because it's really important to them. I think the issue is what can be done about it. Mm -hmm. And that, that's the bigger issue. So somebody has to come forward with some credible ideas about how you affect this because I think for most voters, they're going to say, well, I'm on Facebook. What can, what can my mayor do about what's on Facebook? And so for us, what we deal with are, are really important issues um, that have to do with technology, but don't necessarily aren't necessarily ones that they see. Like um, when our police body cameras take a, a picture of everybody as you're just walking around, a police officers just walking around, which is what we want him or her to do. They're taking all these videos of the people, and then they, we get an open records request uh, for all the video of that person's day. What, what do we do with that request? And so for us, what we tend to deal with on the local level. There are some pretty highly charged issues of who owns this data and what do we do with it? What does it mean for the fact that we typically think of everything that we have as being public, but yet, you know, as through our, our um, fiber system, we get 16 million data points a year off of that. So is every bit of that open to the public? These are really critical issues that we face that, um, that public cares about when they, when they know about them. It's a little bit different than what we see with Facebook, but it's, it's, a diff it's, it's in the same realm, just on a more local level. And um, since we're kind of coming to, toward the end of our time, I wanted to maybe start a little bit of a rapid fire round now. And we've talked about a ton of different technologies today from waste management to scooters. And um, I'd love to kick it off, maybe if we could just go down the line. What's one technology that has changed your city most in the last decade? Maybe Mayor Pete, want to kick it off? Gosh, uh, well, certainly the dockless bike share because we just wouldn't have been able to do it if, if that invention hadn't come along. Um, the answer might be scooters a year from now, but we'll see. And again, uh, I'm just going to say it one more time, wastewater. Um, <laughs> but what I'm, especially the artificial intelligence behind the way we handle that and a lot of other things, we're just at the very outset of understanding how artificial intelligence can change the way cities are run. I'm, I'm going to stick with the uh, the scooter uh, frame, not in just for the mobility options that it provides, but also I think it's beginning to force cities to think a little more uh, out of the box in terms of how you deal with emerging technologies. And so just over the last five to seven years, you've had the advent of transit network, transportation networking companies, the Ubers and Lyfts, and how that has transformed um, how people move within cities. And then you have the bike revolution and now the scooters. I think what is next, rather than trying to figure out what is next, let's try to figure out how we create a structure that, can, that is open to the innovation that the private sector is bringing about. 
Well, these scooter companies have been struggling a lot lately with snow and vandalism, so I'm sure they'll be happy to hear that answer today. And Mayor Burke? It's, it's for us, it's definitely fiber. I mean, it's the backbone of so much of what we do, but the fiber importantly caused us to think differently about who we were. Chattanooga would have never said we could have a tech industry before we turned that on. And after we turned it on, it wasn't just the backbone of that, it was a changing self-conception. And we've been aggressive about that over the last um, 10 years. On top of that, of course, and this is the piece that we don't talk about as much, we have a smart grid that's attached to that. That saves our city tens of millions. In a typical storm, we get back up about uh, in a way that we never could have before because we can pinpoint exactly where the problems are. In a typical storm, that means about a million and a half dollars of value to our community. Well, I think that's about all the time we have for our panel today. Thank you so much to all our guests for being with us. And I know we'll be talking much more in the future about how technology and cities are colliding. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.